This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Unbelievably, she she wasn't consumed by anger. She wasn't ranting and raging. She still has that hope for peace. But what she witnessed that morning, she referred to as subhuman, the depravity butchering of her friends and neighbours. I'm David Knowles, and this is a bonus episode of Battlelines. Terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. Like every place I go, I go run away and I just find bombs and I find dead people. And like maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. (laughs) People telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody. I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home. Last week, I spoke to Naomi Greenway, deputy editor of The Telegraph magazine, about her interview with Adi Efrat, an Israeli woman who survived the horrors of the October the 7th attacks. It's an emotional and heart-stopping story. Here is our conversation. Naomi, who was Adi Efrat before the 7th of October 2023? Can you tell us a little bit about her life and her family? So Adi's a 51-year-old mother of three. One of her sons and one of her daughters were living nearby at the time of the attack, and she lived this very wholesome life on Kibbutz Berry. Ironically, she worked as a trauma specialist, specifically with with animals. What I got from her was that she was really someone who believed in goodness, someone who believed in the goodness of mankind and the goodwill of people. And she described herself slightly to the left politically, which was very typical, actually, in that area. And she lived this communal kibbutz life. And there were a few things she mentioned to me, sort of in passing, that I thought actually really gave a reflection of the type of person she is. She was telling me, that one night she was driving to her sister's house in a nearby town and someone walked along the road. She could see a guy with a briefcase and he was walking along a main road, so she pulled over and she asked him, you know, what's up? And she said it was strange to be walking along a main road and it turns out he was a Palestinian man from Gaza. He'd been working in Israel and he'd missed the last bus. So she told him to get in the car and she gave him a lift to the border. You're not many women anywhere, I think, would pick up a man on a dark road, and especially not in the case when there's so much tension between two communities. But as she explained, she always wants to believe the best in people. She sees the goodness in people. That's what she's about. And in fact, she wrote her dissertation 
on positive Arab-Israeli relations. So she's a peacenik from the heart, a sort of wholesome soul. That, that's what I got from her. You mentioned there her life on the kibbutz, uh, kibbutz Bedi, and you said that's communal life. So can you talk more about that? For people who don't know, what is life like on the kibbutz? So in fact... Kibbutzberry is one of the few kibbutzes left that really have maintained that socialist ethos. So their funds are pooled, they have shared dining room, they have a shared fleet of cars. You know, people have designated jobs. There are people who do the cooking. There are people who, you know, fix the cars. And so it's a, it's a very different life to anything anyone here might lead. It's a true, true socialist life, communal living. And... You know, actually, when we got talking about what happened to her, you can start to understand how painful it was because these are more than neighbours. They're people that she really, she shared everything with. Well, let's go on and talk about that then. What did she experience, what did Ardi experience on the 7th of October? Can you talk us through her morning, the afternoon, what happened in the day? So she was woken up on that morning her daughter and her husband and some were both in different houses nearby. She woke up to the sound of bombs. But she said these were different to usual. So these towns by the border, these kibbutzes by the border, they're, they're under constant rocket fire from Hamas. Even before October the 7th, there were over 1,500 rockets that had been sent over to Israel this year. So it's not that the bomb was unusual, the sound of bombs was unusual, but she said it was different it was louder. There were more of them. So she is in her safe room, shuts the door to her safe room, and she looks at her phone. And she realises something awful is happening. Because in the WhatsApp groups, people are saying that they're hearing shooting outside their houses. They're hearing Arabic outside their houses. They're saying their houses are being broken into. And she's saying people are soon saying, I love you. And they're saying goodbye. And they're going silent on these groups. And she said at the time she didn't understand why or she didn't want to understand why. But since she, she knows what's happened to those people and those were final goodbyes. Then she gets a message from her husband she, that his house is on fire. They'd been separated for, for a few months, she said, and they were living in separate houses. In fact, she told me that the, 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 the night before, the two days before they'd been in Tel Aviv together trying to trying to work on their feelings and talk about getting back together. But she knows his house on fire and she begs him, she begs him to stay in the safe room because she knows that if he climbs out the window, he'll be shot or she fears and she was probably right. And she knows it takes time if you're breathing in smoke for that to kill you and she hopes that he'll be rescued before that might happen. And then she describes hearing gunshots and noises and she hears that there are two terrorists in her own house. And she hopes they won't be able to enter the safe room. But as soon as she says she's thinking about it and her heart's beating, she describes it bursting out her chest. She's she's staring at them and they are they are in the room. And they say to her that if she gets them a car, they won't kill her. So she begs them not to kill her. She comes into the kitchen and she sees they've rifled through her bag and turned things upside down. And she says that that gives her hope because she knows they must really have been looking for car keys. And she thinks maybe... If she sends them off with the keys, they'll let her live. So she explains that she doesn't have her own car, but they have a whole garage of cars on the kibbutz, and she gives them the keys, and she says, at this point, she's so scared, she's shaking, she's so confused, she can't think where this car park is. She's been living on the kibbutz for 30 years, but she's disorientated. So she manages to work it out. She tries to send them off. 
but they say to her, no, you've got to come with us. But on the way to the cars, there's there's gunshots in the distance and the terrorists start running with her and she knows that they're taking her and they're running west and west is towards Gaza. So she's trying to persuade them to go in the direction of the cars, but they, they grab her and they keep moving and they take her to a house where there are other terrorists and, and a 97-year-old woman from the kibbutz that she knows and her caregiver there captive with her hands tied behind her back. There weren't many moments, actually, unbelievably, when talking to Adi that she cracked during the interview. Mm. She was unbelievably calm, but what she told me next was distressing. She heard a loud cry, and she heard someone shouting, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And she saw a terrorist coming towards her with a little toddler dangling by one arm. And he threw the boy on the porch area next to her. But as soon as his feet hit the ground, he wanted to run again. But she knew if he ran, he might be shot. So she tries to persuade him to stay, to stay next to her. But her hands are tied behind her back. So she can't restrain him. So she's trying to talk to him to calm him down, to, to make him stay. And then she sees another woman from the kaput, someone she knows coming towards her. And this woman is hobbling. And she has an- another child with her who has a gash on his head. And she collapses next to her. This woman, she has a bullet in her abdomen and she's struggling to breathe. And when she sees Adi, she says straight away, they shot my husband and they shot Mila. And Adi asks her, who's Mila? And the woman said, she's my baby. So Adi says to her, no, maybe she's just wounded. You don't know she's dead. And the woman says to her, no, they they shot Mila in the head. And Adi said, her hands were tied behind her back. She doesn't have words to comfort this lady. She just puts her head on her shoulder and tries to comfort her that way. She's then taken, she doesn't know why, but they pick her out and they take her with them and they're moving further west in the direction of Gaza and she's obviously terrified. They get to another house and the house is on fire and she knows the house, she recognises the house. It's someone she knows from the kibbutz. She can't see them there. They tell her to go inside the house but it's burning, it's too hot. And there's fighting now. The IDF soldiers are there and there's the gun battle starting. And she takes the initiative to hide in a moment where the terrorists are distracted. She hides in a storeroom on the terrace of this house. She covers herself in nappies, actually, she told me, to to protect herself from bullets. And she just crunches up as small as she can and she stays there hoping that she doesn't get shot. And this goes on for a while. And eventually she can hear that the gunshots are getting less frequent and there are fewer terrorists in this house. She says there were about 15 of them in this house. And eventually she realises that it's going quiet and the terrorists may have retreated, but she doesn't know. She waits a while And eventually she hears Hebrew and she knows that the soldiers are there. And she describes this moment as a mixture of relief, but not total relief. They come over to her, they find her and they say to her, you're safe now, you're with us, we'll protect you. But she says to them, no, she says she doesn't want them to put themselves in danger. She knows that for them having her 
with them in the battle is going to make it harder for them. She sees them, you know, they're kids, they're younger than her daughter. She doesn't want them to put their lives on the line for her, but they insist, they say, no, this is what we're here for. We're here to rescue you. And they create a barrier around her. And she thinks about an hour and a half that they're battling. She described it as they were like angels fighting like lions and in front of her, four of them are injured. Eventually, they managed to evacuate her outside of the kibbutz fence. What did she make of the Hamas terrorists that she was dealing with that tried to kidnap her, that kept her prisoner? She described a few things. When she was at the house with this lady who was on the floor with the bullet in her abdomen, this woman was struggling to breathe. She was describing they were impatient with her, shouting at her. And then other moments she said it was surreal because she's Moroccan, actually, originally. She speaks Arabic. She was trying to talk to them in Arabic telling them about the cars when they were at her house, trying to talk to them in Arabic. And there were moments when she was walking through the kibbutz with a gun held to her head, but it was a beautiful, bright morning and the grass was green and it almost felt like a different universe she was in. But unbelievably, she she wasn't consumed by anger, she wasn't ranting and raging... She still has that humanity in her and incredibly also hope for peace. But what she witnessed that morning, she referred to as subhuman, the depravity, butchering of her friends and neighbours. So that hope for peace is also coupled with absolute certainty that Israel needs to eliminate Hamas in order for that to happen. And I guess my final question is, weeks on from this, when she's thinking back on it, how did you, what did you make of her reflecting. You said that she was quite calm telling you most of the story and there's only a few moments when, when she cracks. I mean, this must have been very difficult to hear. How does she approach it now from, from relative safety? I think reflecting back, one of the saddest moments in that interview for me was hearing her talk about the hope she had almost 20 years ago when Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005 and remembering it as this huge moment of hope for her. It resonated for me because I remember that too. I remember watching it on the news, seeing Israeli soldiers forcibly remove Israelis from their homes in Gaza. And even though the footage was distressing in a sense, the bigger picture was full of hope. This was an agreement of withdrawal in return for peaceful coexistence. And I really believed that this was a new era for Israel. And that's what Adi was talking about, a new era for Israel and a new era for the Palestinian people. And... She was reflecting on how wonderful that would have been, that freedom for Palestinians, and how wonderful for Israel to experience this ever-elusive peace. And she said to me, she thought it would be like it is with Egypt and Jordan. Israelis very freely travel around Egypt. In fact, I've been in Israel and I've crossed that border into the Sinai Desert myself, and it's really no big deal. People, people come and go very freely. She said she thought they would be going to visit the beaches in Gaza, which are among the most beautiful on that coast and she thought they'd be buying falafel in their markets but in 2006 Hamas came into power and very soon those areas near the border were being bombed and she described it starting like fireworks but they slowly got more and more sophisticated 
And she said Israel's response to that was to ensure every house had a safe room. They used their iron dome to intercept these rockets. And also after that, that's when the blockade began to prevent smuggling. And in fact, it's been a very sad era. So there was that element. The, the other thing she found quite obviously upsetting was actually being here in the UK and seeing images of the demonstrations on the streets. She said she tried not to watch because it was too hurtful, because to her it felt like hundreds of thousands of people saying maybe at best, well, you sort of deserved it, and at worst, way worse than that. <laughs> and to her, I think it's hurtful because she also finds the message a bit twisted, particularly from people she sees as aligned with her worldview in so many other ways, because that free Palestine narrative is intrinsically, sometimes implicitly, sometimes very explicitly implying that Israelis and people who support Israel's existence don't want a free Palestine. And in truth, she wanted a free Palestine since before a lot of the people on that march latched onto that idea at all. But obviously her idea of a free Palestine involves peaceful coexistence and she recognizes that for a lot of people on those marches especially those chanting from the river to the sea that's a call for Israel's destruction so for me it was upsetting that after everything she's been through she should come to this country and be confronted with something that from her perspective she finds so hurtful but unbelievably she is in fact still hopeful for peace so I think if she can have that hope we probably all can. Thank you very much. Thank you. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine The Latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.